Hello, I'm Gary Smith, attorney at law, and I want to welcome you to another episode of Psychedelic Alex, the Law of Psychedelics, my ongoing exploration of the question of psychedelics. On today's show, I have the pleasure of interviewing fellow attorney Catherine Tucker. And in a traditional uh, Wayne's World, Wayne and Garth, I'm not worthy moment, I'm not worthy. Now, Catherine's credentials are so numerous, I can't couldn't possibly hope to recite them all. And she's got a resume that goes on for pages. But I want to give you a few highlights just so you can appreciate how significant a figure she is in, in this world of uh, psychedelics and its intersection with palliative care for the terminally ill, which, as we'll get into in my interview with Catherine, is probably the most critical place right now, I think, for psychedelics to emerge as a viable solution for people who are suffering with end-of-life or near-end-of-life conditions. Not just in hospice, but certainly hospice comes to mind. Anyway, before I dive into the interview, I just want to set the stage a little bit and, and let you appreciate the gravitas Catherine brings to this. So amongst things, and I'm just going to read this off the screen because it's just so numerous, uh, and I'm not going to read it all. Um, but Catherine is special counsel at Emerge Law Group, where she co-chairs the Psychedelic Practice Group. Um, they're based out of Washington State, but they have offices uh, throughout the, the Pacific Northwest. Um, Catherine is also executive director of the End of Life Liberty Project. She's the executive director of the Disability Rights Legal Council, and it's, that is the nation's oldest disability rights advocacy organization. Uh, Catherine has served for two decades as a Director of Advocacy and Legal Affairs for Compassion and Choices. Uh, she formerly was uh, practicing law at uh, Perkins & Coey, or excuse me, Perkins Coey. Uh, there's no and in there. Um, she's also held faculty positions as an Associate Professor of Law at Loyola Law School, as well as an Adjunct Professor at the University of Washington, uh, Seattle University, and Lewis and Clark Schools of Law. And she's also a Fulbright Specialist with the United States Department, or excuse me, she's also a Fulbright Specialist with the United States Department of State's Bureau of Education and Cultural Affairs and the Institute of International Education's Council for International Exchange of Scholars. Um, she has appeared on multiple media channels, including Crossfire, The News Hour with Jim Lehrer, Larry King, CNN, to name just a few, and she's even appeared in the National Law Journal, American Lawyer, um, 
back when it was published, George, um, she's appeared in Vogue, Time, People, and Health. Um, Catherine is the absolute real deal, one of the world's experts on this topic. And it was my absolute privilege and pleasure to get her on the show and, and have this conversation with her. So to set the stage, Catherine is embarking on an effort to try to get Right to Try as another avenue to introduce psychedelic palliatives into medicine's normal regimen. And although Catherine and I get into a discussion of what exactly that means, I'll just give you a little bit of information right now to whet your appetite. So under Right to Try laws, if you've got someone who is in a terminal state and they would like to try to experiment with a drug that doesn't have full FDA approval, provided they meet certain criteria and they live in a state that has right to try laws in effect, that patient and the people who administer to that patient can apply for special permission to utilize something that doesn't have full on FDA approval. Um, Typically, this means that they've exhausted the, the panoply of what's available in conventional Western medicine, and it hasn't made a difference in their lives. So it's kind of a legal Hail Mary to give somebody at least a fighting chance of, of living longer or living better. So I'll leave it there because I don't want to spoil this, but I do hope you enjoy the interview. And again, it was an absolute pleasure and privilege to have Catherine on the show, and I do hope she returns, and she said she would, so I'm going to hold her to it. Anyway, enjoy the interview. All right. So, um, Catherine Tucker, uh, attorney at law, I am so grateful to have you on the show today, and I want to welcome you to Psychedelic Alex, the law of psychedelics, our ongoing exploration of the question of psychedelics. And um, you have the most impressive resume, and I'm absolutely thrilled and tickled to have you on the show. We have a great topic to talk about today. And before we get into it, I'd love for you to just share with the audience a little bit of your experience, because you've got the most incredible resume and tremendous gravitas behind this particular topic. And I really want the audience to understand where you're coming from because you're probably top of the top on this topic internationally. You're way too kind. Um, I'm super happy to be with you. Thanks for inviting me. Um, my work for the last 30 years has been in the domain of protecting and expanding the rights of terminally ill patients. And I've had the opportunity to do that work from private law firm practice, from nonprofit organization, uh, a variety of nonprofit organizations. And now I'm back in the private sector, but I still am very much engaged with public interest work. And I have come into the space of psychedelics through the lens of the clinical trials showing the efficacy of psilocybin in particular as a drug remarkably effective in relieving non-physical suffering in patients with serious illness. So if you've been following the exciting modern renaissance of clinical trials of psychedelic substances, you know that a subset of these clinical trials are patients with advanced cancer who have treatment-resistant anxiety and depression. And the impact of psilocybin therapy for these patients has been dramatic. Their anxiety and depression is mitigated, it's eradicated, and it doesn't come back. 
Um, so it's very exciting for people who have a focus on that population of patients, partly because the advances in modalities to address physical pain and suffering have been dramatic, and yet very little advance in modalities addressing non-physical suffering, what is sometimes referred to as existential suffering, sometimes labeled anxiety and or depression. So this is an exciting new palliative care tool in the palliative care toolbox. Interesting. Now, does this extend merely to the terminally ill or also the grievously ill, meaning that one might expect to survive the uh, ailment or experience? So the clinical trials that I'm alluding to have been patients with advanced terminal illness. Uh, so I am not aware that similar studies have been done with patients in this other population that you allude to. Um, but I think, you know, the excitement in the world of research around these different psychedelic substances is, um, what applications will they be efficacious? And that's very much under investigation. Sure. But the data already is so remarkable with regard to efficacy in relieving anxiety and depression in seriously ill patients that I am embarked into some advocacy to open access to these substances for that population, even though the clinical trials have not run their full course and we do not yet have um, the conclusion of all phases of clinical trials. Okay. Um, now, you, you mentioned that you're having to um, get permission to conduct these studies and do these trials. For the benefit of our audience who, who aren't all lawyers like us, can you describe what some of the obstacles are and, and why this is a challenge? Like, for example, why isn't this already happening? Why are doctors not able to just go grab a, a psychedelic or a psychoactive and just put it in the regimen uh, in, in the treatment right. of all of these maladies? So as you know, there's a, a huge backstory here. Oh, and course. Michael Pollan has done a service to humanity by providing a really nice overview of the backstory in his book, How to Change Your Mind. Um, but the research into these substances that was in prior generations was largely shut down in the mid sixties, um, for a complex array of reasons. And for many years, these substances were not studied and the modern era of research really, um, owes a great debt to bold and intrepid researchers like Roland Griffiths at Johns Hopkins, uh, Rick Doblin at MAPS, Charlie Grobe at UCLA. These um, modern era scientists, researchers have embarked into study of these substances. And in this era have conducted incredibly rigorous studies, the results of which are now published in leading medical journals. That is creating the platform for these substances to be seriously considered as uh, appropriate for medical use. The goal of those ongoing studies is to take them through all phases of clinical trial within the FDA purview. 
So you have phase one clinical trials. If those are successful, comes phase two clinical trials. If those are successful, phase three is your final round. And then at the conclusion of all of that, if the investigational drug has satisfied uh, showing of safety and efficacy, then comes the moment when uh, one would hope that the substance, the drug, would be moved off of Schedule 1, which is where the psychedelic substances currently sit and have sat since 1970, which means they cannot be prescribed. Um, off of Schedule 1, onto a different schedule, 2, 3, 4, or 5, which are schedules that licensed clinicians can prescribe. So that's what's going on in that world of research and potential rescheduling. As we know from cannabis as an example, um, substances can sit on schedule one, even if it seems it would be good to schedule them to a different schedule for a very long time. Because of my interest in serving the needs of terminally ill patients, and the strong showing of efficacy in relieving non-physical suffering for those patients. One of the projects that I've embarked into that I think is exciting is to take existing state and federal law, which recognizes that dying patients don't have the luxury of time to wait for that long process to wend its way to completion, and access drugs that are considered to be investigational. Psilocybin is one such drug, and psilocybin is a drug that in the phase one trials has been shown efficacious in relief of non-physical suffering. So I am taking an advocacy effort forward on behalf of a oncology clinic and a palliative care physician and a number of the patients of that physician to apply that law, which is called right to try, to psilocybin so that we can uh, enable that physician to obtain that drug and make it available in a therapeutic use with his dying cancer patients. That's a first of its kind sort of advocacy. If we are successful with it, the exciting thing is that it would open potential access for patients in that population nationwide. One of the things that's exciting about that is not only would we serve the needs of that large population of patients, but it would offer the opportunity for physicians and patients and the public to become more aware and familiar with the benefit of that drug, its safety and its efficacy, in hopes that that would speed along the rescheduling that I mentioned earlier. Um, and in hopes that it would open application to other populations. That is a beautiful, beautiful explanation. Thank you. Um, and, and that also answers why you're focused on this particular group, which is terminally ill patients, as opposed to a broader group of, say, just grievously ill patients. Yeah. Because uh, there's a particular carve out that you're trying to focus on in the law. And I want to dive into that. But before we do, let's talk about those patients and, and what they're going through and who they are and what they represent and what this represents for them. Can, can you speak to that a bit? Yes, yes, yes. Because it is ultimately uh, about those people and we are those people. Yes. And what I hope your viewers will appreciate if they are not familiar with 
what dying in modern America is like. Um, I'll give a little framing that modern medicine can do wondrous things. Um, but one of the realities of modern medicine is that it can extend the dying process so long that some patients come to feel that they're trapped and it can be a long and lingering and brutal experience to be a terminally ill patient in modern day America. So um, for those patients, as I mentioned, we have made strides in addressing and developing modalities for relief of physical pain and suffering. So for example, in all 50 states, a terminally ill patient who has pain and suffering that cannot be relieved with conventional medicine can choose an option known as palliative sedation. That is where the patient is administered controlled substances to the point of loss of consciousness, total sedation. So there's no awareness of the pain and suffering. Food and fluid are withheld until death arrives. And that might take a couple of weeks, depending on the condition of the patient. That um, is an important intervention. Um, it's not something that every patient would choose, and it's not something that every patient would need, but it's a very aggressive option of last resort. We also increasingly allow terminally ill patients who have determined that their least worst option is to achieve a peaceful death. We let them do that. Sorry. Nope, no worries. We'll be editing this. Let me turn that off. Vagaries of modern life. Modern life. Too many <laughs> devices. Yeah. Um, we let an increasingly large population of terminally ill patients choose to obtain controlled substances that they can ingest to precipitate a peaceful death. That practice is called aid in dying. Um, when you allow patients to eradicate consciousness with palliative sedation or advance the time of death with aid in dying, when you realize those choices are on the table, I like to ask the question, shouldn't we allow patients the option to elevate and expand consciousness, which is what the experience with psychedelic medicine is? What we don't know, and what is a very interesting question, is whether that experience with a psychedelic therapeutic session would change the patient's mind about these other interventions. That's a fascinating question. And I hope that we'll start to see clinical trials enroll that will be oriented towards answering that question. It could go either way, hmm. but I will say that some of the um, palliative care physicians, the end of life care physicians who are opposed to the option of aid in dying, they are speaking out in support of opening access to psychedelic medicine for this patient population on the hypothesis that it might change and deter the desire of patients to advance the time of death through aid and dying. Very interesting question. We don't have data that bears on it. I hope that we will start to see those studies enroll.
So the theory is that by, by giving a terminally ill patient access to psychoactives, it, it might allow them greater dignity and presence in that time, um, in turn enabling them to give a more conscious thought to how the end comes and, and right. what it will be experienced like, not just for themselves, right. but for their family members too. Um, right. I'm, I'm fortunate enough to not have had the experience of a long lingering death in my family. I've had plenty of deaths, but you know, nothing that went on for a long time. Um, but I know that I'm kind of the exception. I suspect most families have at least one long death in, in their story. Yeah. Uh, and this is a recurrent thing that will never end. It's the nature of life itself. So uh, this is an intriguing thought to, to allow somebody to face their final days a little more themselves rather than just numbing it all away with, I, I suppose, high doses of opioids or, or other um, prescription medications. Yes, yes. And so if you um, look at the studies that are reported, what the patients are reporting is that the um, anxiety and or depression that they had about their impending death was fundamentally altered. Their fear of the dying process and death was alleviated. And so they were then able to have a much improved quality of life for whatever the remaining quantum turns out to be. And that's so important. And that's why I think, you know, we are seeing um, the palliative care, the end of life care community, patient advocacy groups, physician professional associations, sit up and take note and actually become part of the effort to make these medicines available. Um, I was recently involved with the successful campaign in Oregon to pass the nation's first law that legalizes psilocybin therapy. So Oregon, often a trailblazer, is once again a trailblazer in this measure. Um, and one of the things I was happy to see happen as we were working on that campaign was that um, different end-of-life advocates really did come forward in coalition to support the enactment of that measure. Um, and so, you know, that can be very important when you're trying to do something that requires the vote of the people, as is what uh, the Oregon measure involved. Uh, and so when voices from the end-of-life care community, hospice providers, physicians who do end-of-life care, stepped up and spoke in support, I think that was an important part of the success of that uh, campaign. Mm. And I, it will be an important part of success as we move into implementation in Oregon, um, that, though, that that community is part of a smooth implementation. Yeah, I, I was thrilled to see uh, the Oregon vote during this election. Um, I know they're a couple of years away from getting that program standing up because they've got to create all the rules, et cetera. But um, exciting times. And I, I am so looking forward to seeing Oregon move forward and candidly hoping to repeat that process here in Arizona. Um, right. Now, before we dive into the right to try issues, um, I want to set one more player on the chessboard. Who are the opponents to this? And, and what is, uh, if they've got a reason, what is their reason for opposing 
letting dying people have a chance at greater dignity and presence during their final days? Who opposes that? <laughs> Such a good question. You would hope no one. Um, and this right to try effort is very much in the launch phase. So we're in the early stages of it. Um, because these substances are on schedule one, and I'll speak most specifically about psilocybin, um, it sits on schedule one, which means it has no currently um, accepted medical use. That would be the traditional understanding of what placement on schedule one means. Um, however, the right to try does not exclude Schedule One substances. Now, interestingly, and we're both lawyers, I don't know if everyone in the audience is a lawyer, but um, interestingly, some of the right to try statutes that have been enacted around the country do exclude Schedule One substances. Hmm. So, for example, the state of Missouri. If you take a look at its Right to Try Act, you will see that it specifically explicitly excludes Schedule One substances. That makes it abundantly clear that if a state or the federal government, when they gave legislative consideration to Right to Try, intended to exclude Schedule One substances, they would have done so. Um, and so, in the statutes that don't have that exclusion, which includes the federal statute, and it includes the Washington state enactment, which is the uh, state in which the right to try advocacy effort I've embarked, uh, that statute governs there, they don't include that exception. So we know that right to try is intended to include unless specifically excluded, yeah. uh, Schedule One substances. Yeah. So I, I expect we'll have some possible pushback from the regulatory agencies, the DEA and the state counterpart agencies that regulate drugs in that state. In Washington state, it's the Department of Health and it's the Pharmacy Commission in particular, that they may try to push back against application of right to try to psilocybin, but I think we have the clear um, protection of the statutes, and we intend to push that forward so that these patients can access psilocybin, even though it sits on Schedule 1. Yeah, I, I think for the, the law and Latin nerds at home, I think the term is exclusio est, exclusio unius, uh, which is a legal phrase for effectively re regarding a statute, if it ain't in there, it ain't in there. Um, so you can also refer to that as the omitted case canon, uh, and 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 I would that that might be a little bit easier. Although I admire your Latin <laughs> invocation, uh, but yes, the omitted case canon, and and that just says that we don't include in statutes things that are not included. Yep. We don't add things to those statutes. And by the way, that's a very um, sort of conservative approach to statutory interpretation. Sure. So. <laughs> Um, where does the right to try come from? What's its origin? So um, I am relatively new to learning about right to try. I take no credit for its enactment. It has been phenomenally successful. Right to try was sponsored by a libertarian think tank called the Goldwater Institute, mm -hmm. which sits in Arizona. Indeed it does. Um, <laughs> right where you are. 
and named after Barry Goldwater. And it does a variety of things. I invite you to visit its website. I've been in touch with its leadership when I first started looking at applying right to try to psilocybin. I wanted to go right to the source of those measures and talk with them about the application of right to try to psilocybin. Uh, and they're very thrilled to see it have application here. Um, right to try began as a series of state enactments. I believe Colorado was the first state um, between 2015 and today. I believe it's 41 states. So if you've worked as I have in legislative reform, you know that enacting successfully, succeeding in enacting 41 state enactments in that small period of time, we're only talking six years. Miraculous. Um, that's amazing. Oh, that's yeah. amazing. Yeah, that's, and, that's beyond amazing. It is almost right. unheard of. Right. And in 2018, the federal Congress enacted a federal version. So we have 41 state statutes and a federal statute, and they basically recognize the reality that for patients with serious advanced illness, and here I'll just pause and say, um, you must look at the language of each of these statutes because the language varies. Sure in defining the patient population. So you'll see language that says life-threatening illness. You'll see serious advanced illness. Um, there's a range of descriptors. Um, but the recognition was that for those patients, death is approaching. They don't, they may not have much time and they likely don't have time to wait for investigational new drugs to finish their drug approval process. So for that patient population, if an investigational new drug has completed a phase one clinical trial and it remains in later stage investigation, that drug is to be accessible to that population. Okay. And that, that's critical. Let's pause there for a moment because I was going to ask what are the criteria to be considered uh, a viable patient in that model? And then also what substance is considered to be viable for that patient to try? And you, you've kind of answered that, but let's, let's flesh it out a little sure. bit. So with, with the patient, um, they have to be in a, a terminal or near terminal state. Uh, life-threatening life threatening illness. Yeah, which doesn't necessarily guarantee that they will die at the end, but right. there's a belief that that is the probable destination. Now, relative to the substances they can use, you've indicated uh, that, and this is universal across all these laws, that it's got to be at least in or beyond a phase one, correct? Must have completed a phase one clinical trial approved by the FDA. Okay. So uh, for the folks at home who, who are listening, this means you don't just grab something off the shelf and say, screw it, let's try that. You don't get to do that. There's got to be a modicum of science behind it. It may not be yeah. settled science, but there's got to be science, right? Yes. Okay. Yes. Fascinating. Um, and it must, and then your next criteria, it must still be under active investigation. Okay. 
And that probably explains why some of the states have written their laws to exclude Schedule 1. Have a question about psychedelics and the law? You're welcome to submit them. Please send your questions to admin at psychedelicalex.com. Submission of questions is not an assurance that they will be used on the show. Also, please be aware that neither the submission of a question nor a response creates an attorney-client privilege between you and the show's host, nor does an answer constitute legal advice. Information provided is for general purposes only. If you need legal counsel, you should hire competent counsel in your community. Thank mm-hmm. you.